So what we'll do is, if anyone has got any questions, and as usual, we'll we'll give priority to any of those who don't come regularly. Um, you know, I've sort of been sitting here thinking, well, should we carry on or, or what? And I just think it is right that, that someone's got something they'd like to ask, which might benefit all of us. Um, can I ask about again about Melchizedek? I always find myself absolutely confused about this character who pops up without father, without mother, without. Oh, I see. Yeah. You know, was he a man? Or was it the Holy Spirit? <laughs> was it Mount Right? Okay. No, with Melchizedek, um, you know the story. I mean, Abraham's had the battle with the kings and that. And uh, they're leaving the battle of Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem. All right, now Salem was later to become Jerusalem. But this was before the Jewish nation was around. I mean, there was only Abraham. He was the first one. And he kind of, you know, he, he pays tithes to Melchizedek. Now, where the argument about Melchizedek is taken up is when you get the writer to the Hebrews. And remember, the book of Hebrews was written to Jews. It was written to Hebrews who had got converted. And what it's doing is it's sorting out various problems for them from their Jewish background about the Messiah. Now, the context of Melchizedek coming up was with the writer dealing with the whole thing about Jesus being our great high priest. Mm. Now, the point was that Israel had lived under the Aaronic priesthood, all right? Um, a priesthood whereby, in order to be a priest, you had to come from the tribe of Levi. It was a genealogy thing. It was something passed on from father to son. Now, for years, they had been under that Levitical priesthood, and it had been exactly God's will that they were. But the whole of the Old Testament system, every facet of God's dealings with Israel, was simply there to teach them the gospel in advance, to prepare them for the coming of Jesus, to give them, if you like, loads and loads of parables, pictures, living, walking sermons, if you like, of the gospel, to prepare them to receive their Messiah when he comes. Now, what the main hang-up was about Jesus being a great high priest is that <coughs> the Jews emphasized only the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical priesthood as it's called. Now they would have had problems coming to terms with the fact that Jesus wasn't a Levite. How could he be a priest if he wasn't a Levite? Now <coughs> what the writer to the Hebrews does is he takes them back into their Old Testament history. And remember, they had the Old Testament and they knew it to be the Word of God. And he takes them back and he proves to them that even though God gave them the priesthood through the Levites, that that was not the only priesthood that there could possibly be, you see. For instance, Melchizedek was the great high priest at that time. Now, what that's meaning um, in the Old Testament days, what would happen before God got Israel and sort of gave the whole idea of the Levites to be priests, or one tribe to be priests, that the king of a city was the priest of the city, all right? Uh, the father in a family would be the priest to the family. Remembering, what is the job of the priest? The job of the priesthood, and I'm, I'm going to say something about modern day priesthood in a moment, or we're going to get confused. The job of a priest is to mediate between man and God. That is what a priest is there to do. A priest is to bring a man in his human situation hand in hand with God. Alright? That is what priesthood is all about. To deal with the man's sin, alright, that separates him from God. So the priesthood is there to bring a man to God. So therefore, in the old days, before God gave the priests and the Levites, the king would be priest to his people, and the father would be priest to the son. Now, what the writer's showing is that the priesthood that came from Levi was not the only one that there was, all right? Now, God acknowledged Melchizedek to be a great high priest. Now, remember, this was before the priesthood that God created through Levi came into being. So, what the writer's doing, he says, look, certainly the Levites are priests to Israel, but they are not the only priests. And he proves it to them, all right, by demonstrating that Abraham acknowledged that Melchizedek 
was a great high priest. And in Abraham's acknowledging of Melchizedek being the great high priest, that proved to Israel, reading the Old Testament, that God had appointed Melchizedek to be a great high priest. So what he's doing is he's showing, look, priesthood is there to give a picture of mediating between God and man. But don't think that priesthood is simply a question of handed down from father to son, because Melchizedek was a great high priest, but he lived before the Levites were even in existence. All right. So all he's doing is that he's saying, look, you're having a hang-up. How can Jesus be a priest, all right, the great high priest, if he's not from the tribe of Levi? But he's saying, but you've forgotten that the Levitical priesthood is simply one form of the priesthood. There were others before Israel came into being, and God acknowledged them. So all he's doing is he's proving to them that it didn't matter that Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi in order to be a great high priest. Now then, the main hang-up that the Jews were having is that by then they saw priesthood purely as a question of who your father was. It was a genealogical thing. Therefore, in order to be a priest in Israel, you had to prove your genealogy, all right? Any prophecy, um, any prophet, anyone who was used by God had to be able to prove their genealogy to the Jews. Now, the point is this, that when we're told about Melchizedek, that when it says that he was without father or mother, it's not they're trying to paint a picture that he was some superhuman character. And some teach that Jesus was Melchizedek, that it was Jesus in his pre-existence. It wasn't at all. It's simply saying that um, Melchizedek was a priest in his own right, called of God, and his genealogy was neither here nor there, because there's no record of his mother or father. Whereas for any priest in Israel, that's what they had to have above all else. They had to prove that they were a Levite. So, all the writer's doing is he's saying, look, Jesus is our great high priest. But the priesthood under Levi is not the only one that exists. So it doesn't matter that Jesus wasn't a Levi because there was a true priesthood from God on the earth before the Levites even came into existence. And Melchizedek is used as an example of that. And he was without father or mother, i.e. the genealogy of it didn't matter at all. Because finally, priesthood is a question of being appointed by God. And remember, it was God who said that the tribe of Levi would provide the priests to Israel. Now then, go back to the fact that I've said that everything in the Old Testament was given by God simply to foreshadow what Messiah would do and be like when he came. It was the gospel being played out. Now then, what is the role of priesthood? The role of priesthood is to bring God and man together, is for the priest to, to, to deal with the sin that has come between the man and his God. So the priest is there to be an arbiter, if you like, to bring together God and man. And the priesthood was only given to picture the coming of Jesus. All right. Now then, Jesus, in being his great, uh, a great high priest, what is it that he's done? Well, it's quite simply this. There is, one, uh, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Can you see that? That Jesus was finally the one who dealt with sin and brought God and man together. You get to a God, you get to God through a priest. Jesus is our great high priest because Jesus is at one and the same time man and he's God as well and he dealt with sin. Now then, bearing that in mind, Melchizedek becomes even more a type of Jesus in the Old Testament for this simple reason, that he was the king of Salem, alright? Now Salem became Jerusalem, the capital of the Jews, mm. alright? Um, let's actually have a look at it, if you sort of turn to Genesis chapter, let's see if I can... Very neat, isn't it? The Lord did. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on, where, where is the bit about Melchizedek? Genesis chapter... Oh, I can't find him now. Oh, that's right, Genesis chapter 14. Let's actually read, read the story. 
said, uh, we'll, we'll start at verse 17, all right? After his return, this is talking about Abraham, after his return from the defeat of Kedor Laoma, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now then, Melchizedek is doing a twofold thing for Abraham. Firstly, he's confirming that the blessing of God is on Abraham. But secondly, he's reminding Abraham that the great victory he just had was because God gave it to him. All right, So he's preventing um, Abraham from getting too big-headed. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. All right, this is one of the verses where the idea of tithing comes from. All right, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Notice he doesn't say that God wanted him to, it's just Abraham's idea. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, maker of heaven and earth, etc., etc. Now then, bearing that in mind, go over to Hebrews chapter 7, where we see the New, uh, the, the New Testament kind of teaching on this, Hebrews chapter 7, with this bloke kind of um, sorting this out, and Hebrews chapter 7. Bear in mind that in the, pre in the preceding chapters, like for instance in, in chapter 5, he's been dealing with the nature of priesthood, alright? Now then, in this context, Hebrews 7, 1, for this Melchizedek, priest of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now then, bear in mind that, that uh, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, or what would become Jerusalem. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Now that is what Melchizedek means. It means king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, and that is king of peace, because Salem meant peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Now that's the important point. Not saying that he didn't have a mum or dad, but his genealogy was unimportant in his role of being high priest. Because finally, being a priest is a question of being appointed by God to be a priest, and has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever you see. The whole point being that under, you know, sort of Levi and the Old Testament law, kind of eventually your priest died and you had to get another one, you see. Now then, all the writer's doing is saying that the priesthood of Jesus was different from the Levites, alright? Because the Levites were purely a temporary measure, simply there to educate Israel about the need for a priest, someone to atone for sin, someone to bring them to God. And that's the only reason the priesthood was given. Israel had got hung up on the thing that you had to prove you were a Levite, but the writer is proving that in order to be a priest, there was a genuine God-given priesthood before the nation of Israel even existed. And in fact, he's saying that priesthood was far more akin to the priesthood of Jesus. Because it wasn't a question of genealogy, it was just a question of being appointed by God. So, therefore, simply from this, Jesus is our priest, all right? He is the one who brings us to God. He is the one who has dealt with sin. But then, we've got to go on, all right? When Jesus came to Israel, the priesthood in Israel was finished, all right? It wasn't needed anymore. It kind of passed away. And a completely new priesthood came into being. Again, totally different. Remember, Melchizedek was one type of priesthood. The Levites were a different type of priesthood, bringing out different aspects of what the Messiah would do when he came. But then, once Messiah came, all that lot went by the board, because it was totally redundant, not needed. It had done its job, all right, not needed anymore. And then a totally different kind of priesthood came into effect. And the priesthood that comes into effect now is the priesthood of all believers. Which simply means this, 
What does a priest do? A priest brings men to God. All right? Now then, Jesus died. He dealt with sin on the cross. Okay? We've met Jesus. We're right with God. You and I can bring other people to God because we can bring them to Jesus. Can you see? We're priests. And when we've brought them to Jesus, we can declare them forgiven on the basis of the Word of God, you see. So then, that's the whole point about it. We are priests. Now, you can see from this that the idea that the churches have of an ordained priesthood is in actual fact heresy. And the reason it's heresy is because it's, I mean, they are priests in the Old Testament tradition. Can you see? Because if you've got a man who's ordained and he's got a dog collar, or whether he wears a dog collar or not, the idea being that he can do something for you in regards to bringing you to God that no one else can do. Can you see how crazy it is? It's the priesthood of all believers. You know, and I mean, this thing, I mean, having vicars and, you know, sort of whatever they are, I mean, ministers and all that, it is in actual fact, it's serious error. It's totally misleading. You either believe in the priesthood of all believers or you don't. And if you go and put a dog collar on, um, you know, or if you recognise dog collars, all right, I mean, okay, you can't stop them wearing them, I suppose, but you don't have to treat them special, do you, you see? Now, I mean, if, if, if you're bowing down to that, we're, we're acknowledging that there's a caste system in the body of Christ, and there isn't. We are all priests. We are all priests. Um, I demonstrate that on the news today with, like, that family in the vicarage who like the robbers robbed them and upset the daughter um it was more terrible people thought because it was a vicar and his family but if that had been just a well no, say just an ordinary christian family mm. it wouldn't have been so terrible but it's because the world see the dog collar and think they're holy holy mm. you know more than the rest of us and oh yeah yeah but, i mean fortunately the guy the vicar come on the telly and said he's no different to anyone else. Mm. But the media put them oh, up yeah. as almost being God, doesn't Oh, it? yeah. Yeah, that's right. God. Or say oh. something rude when the vicar's around. They say, oh, sorry, vicar, I'm carrying yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it is... I mean, what must the world think when they see clerics with dog collars? Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it, it's crazy. Is it David Paulson who... Um, said on a tape once he, went, he was visiting in hospital and he, he didn't have his dog collar on, he was just dressed normal like mm. the rest of us and he was chatting to this guy and the guy was sort of telling him his problems and in amongst it were a few fruity words and um, all of a sudden David Paulson noticed that the guy stopped using all his fruity words and his whole conversation changed and he thought, that's funny, and he looked up and the vicar, the vicar walked had walked in, yeah. in with his dog collar on. Mm. And it was from that day that David Paulson said he would he refused mm. to ever yeah. wear one because people can't be real yeah. when they see the white because they mm. don't they can't relate to you as a ordinary oh, yeah. human being. Yeah. And he's that's never right. worn one since, has he? Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean it, it it is the I mean sort of I suppose the point is that we get so um, accepting, don't we? Now, don't get me wrong, we have fellowship with all brothers and sisters, all right? Of course we do. But, I mean, we're far too tolerant in the church of, of Jesus Christ today. I mean, we'll discipline people uh, for certain things and let others get away absolutely scot-free. Um, I mean, for instance, I mean, we sort of fall out with people who preach against the baptism in the Spirit, and I can understand that. And yet we let our spirit-filled leaders wear dog collars. Now, it's totally inconsistent. It's a serious heresy to have a priesthood in the body of Christ that consists of some and not others. It's heresy. Now, if you talk to these men, they will say, oh, but of course we believe in the priesthood of all believers. Well, I say, why don't you take that wretched dog collar off it then? Can you see? They say that they believe in the priesthood of all believers, but they don't really because they're remaining different from the people they're leaving. They're leading. Now, obviously, you've got to have eldership. You've got to have leaders and teachers in the church. Of course you have. But if you project them as being a priesthood, which is what we do today, I mean, it's horrendous. 
leave really is absolutely horrendous, but we're, we're so soft on it. What do you think of the statement that the vicar in Chigwell used to make, that I stand, he said, on the Godward side of man and the manward side of God? Right, I agree with him completely, but that is true if he's born again, not because he's a vicar. Because that is true of every believer. In that statement, he has summed up priesthood well. But priesthood is for every believer. You see, that's the point. It's for all of us. It's, it's, it's not just for some. Man being unconverted man, obviously. What's that? By that definition, man, when you're standing on the Godward side of man, you're standing on the Godward side of unconverted man. I think, in that phrase, is he's simply saying he's representing man to God, and he's representing God to man. You see what I mean? He's standing between them. Now that's exactly what every believer is there to do. We stand, I mean, I am a man, alright, I am human, therefore everyone out there in the world, I can, you know, put my hand in theirs because I'm a human like them. Like them. But what else am I? I'm the temple of God. Jesus lives in me. Therefore, as I put my hand in the hand of man, they put their hand in God's hand, because Jesus lives in me. Not because I'm divine. I'm a man, but Jesus lives in us. Can you see that? Mm. Jesus was God and man. Therefore, he's the great high priest. Because he was God and man, he brought God and man together. But Jesus, in order to do that, needs people to come to him and have faith in him. Now, how does Jesus reach out to the world? Through you and I, his church. So what that guy said is absolutely right, I endorse it 100%, but it's true, not because he's a vicar, it's true because he's a Christian, if indeed he is a Christian, and it's true of every Christian, and there's still that question unanswered, why the dog collar? Can you see what I mean? Now some really get progressive, they drop their dog collars, alright, and they just, but they keep the reverend. Now, can you say, to throw your dog collar away, but to be the reverent somebody, Reverend Joe Bloggs, is still a denial of the priesthood of all believers. Because you're, you've still got a special caste who are more priesthood than others. And it's absolutely crazy. You know, it's, it's a total denial of, of the but priesthood. you could say that of everything in life, couldn't you, really? What's that, John? Well, you could say, like, now, if you want a job in the bank, you couldn't get a job in the bank wearing no collar and tie. You wouldn't get a job in there. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, they hand it down, like, you know, whatever they say you have. If it's a church, you wear a dog collar. It's a symbol that you wear the dog collar to be recognized. Same now if you get a job in the bank. You wouldn't get it unless you had a collar and tie on. Yeah, I you suppose know, the point is, though, that brought down to say, well, you either throw my line or else you're out. Yeah, yeah because there are young people in there and they say, oh, where's your time? Yeah, I suppose that if you, you work for a bank, and I mean, sort of bank sort of people tend to wear collar and tie and suits, yeah. well, fine, obviously, you wear what your employers say, all right? Yeah. But the point is, no one has to be employed by the church. If you're going to be employed by a church, make sure you're employed by a church that is doing what the Bible says, rather than procreating the mere traditions of men. So the point is um, that if you had someone um, who was sort of like wearing a dog collar and they said, well, look, I, I am perfectly aware of the fact that me wearing this dog collar is deceptive, all right? I am painting an unbiblical picture, and they are, all right? If they're calling themselves reverent, all right? If they're calling themselves the vicar. I mean, do you know what vicar comes from? It comes from the word vicarious. The vicarious suffering of Jesus. Jesus died in our place. All right. And the idea of the vicar is someone who stands in your place before God. That's total, utter heresy, you see. Pardon? Yeah. That's, of course it is. Jesus said, call no man father, you see. Now, the point is that, I mean, if you've got someone in a church, either someone who's a vicar and wearing their dog collar, or not just, I mean... A, not just Anglican Church, Baptists do it, Methodists do it, this isn't a partisan thing, alright? That if, if either they're ordained and wearing their dog collar and calling themselves reverent, um, or whether it's someone in the church, under submission to it all, sort of condoning it for the mere reason they're there. Now, if those people then say, well look, yeah, I accept that it's wrong, but I've got to toe the line because I'm part of it, 
Now, there's a very real sense. If you're part of it, I agree, you must toe the line because the Bible says you must submit to your leaders, you see. But you've got to raise the question. While you're there, yeah, you've got to do it their way. So why are you there? Can you see what I mean? It's so easy. If a man knows that wearing a dog collar goes against the scripture, he can hardly excuse it by saying, well, it's what my church demands of me, because he doesn't have to be in that church. The great contrast I mean? to the dog collars and people recognising people as dog collar men is um, uh, Chichester, that little story Roger Price quoted about the visiting speaker they had after the meeting he was talking to him and um, you know, Roger said, uh, he did it as an experiment, he said, could you point out the elders to me? And this speaker didn't even know that Roger Price was an elder and he didn't know any of the others. So this guy sort of looked around for a few minutes, eyeing up obviously all the men, and um, he pointed, he knew there were eight, so he pointed eight men out and not one of them was the elders. And Roger Price was really, I mean, he said he took it as an insult because he hadn't been recognised. But he, he took it as a great compliment because mm. the whole church knew who the elders were and knew who to go to um, to ask questions and things. But the elders were so much one part of the whole body mm. and mingled in the congregation. They weren't sitting in Someone eight chairs up the front. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that it, it was a real compliment that somebody mm. on the outside um, thought that eight mere members, <laughs> as it would be, mm. were elders because they were acting so sort of adult-like in, in the Christian mm. faith. And that yeah. was lovely. They didn't need to wear dog collars. Yeah. All right, if they'd had their dog collars on, you could have pointed eight, the eight out, but oh, yeah. eight, they couldn't. One of the things sort of today, which I think in, in some ways is uh, a little bit disturbing, um, is that, I mean, it's like we've had the outpouring of the Spirit, and that's been terrific. When? Um, <laughs> I must have been too young. <laughs> no, it's before my time, isn't it? Uh, no, it's been happening for about 30 years now. Um, but we've had the outpouring of the Spirit, all right, and that's been good, and we've rediscovered many, many things. But of course, what's a bit disappointing is that what we've managed to now do is rather than to allow the Holy Spirit to change us into what he wants to do and remember that in the Bible Jesus wants to build his church committing to what the Bible says not to, you know, not to all the traditional stuff but to what the Bible says rather than allowing that to happen now what we've done is that we've made the Holy Spirit fit in to our traditions and structures um, I mean one thing that sort of really um, you know, I, I sort of, oh, groan, it did make me groan. Um, in Renewal magazine, some time ago, there's a thing called Anglican Renewal Ministries, all right? And the whole idea being, it's, it's to spread, like, the gifts of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit, sort of throughout the Anglican Church. Like, for instance, there's, there's one in the Methodist Church called GEAR, G-E-A-R, I can't remember what it stands for, but again, the idea being to get the Holy Spirit spread throughout the whole of the Methodist Church. Now, what concerned me a bit is that Anglican Renewal <coughs> Ministries, they put out lots of literature about the gifts of the Spirit and all that, good teaching, fine, all right? But there's also a publication um, on infant baptism. And what you're getting now is you're simply getting Spirit-filled versions of the old heresies. And I think that's worrying. I think that's worrying. It's like the stories that, I mean, you know, quite horrifying in some sections of the Catholic Church. People are baptised in the Spirit in the name of Mary. And I think that's very worrying. Can you see what I mean? Because what's happening is that rather than allowing the Holy Spirit to bring us into submission to the Scripture, it's very easy to start simply coming up with a Holy Spirit charismatic version of your tradition. And I think it's a bit tragic. Um, you know, I just do. I think it is amazing. And, I mean, we know that the Holy Spirit, everything he does is going to be absolutely consistent with the Scriptures. All right. Now, I ask you, how can it possibly be, in that case, that in some sections of the church, some of the very teachings which are false are being reinforced and strengthened by the move of the Spirit? I mean, all... 
All one can do is to shake your head, in a sense, in despair. It's false teaching. It's very, very suspect. I mean, it's like when God moves in a particular place, he moves in that place to more and more conform everything in that place to what the Bible says. Uh, it was interesting, actually. I was sort of like editing a sort of tape the other day. It's one that I did years ago. I was sort of, I was sort of doing it to get it in the tape library. And on it, I was sort of saying that, um, that say, for instance, you get C of E church, and I'm, I'm just hooking, you know, it could be Methodist churches or whatever who are really moving in the spirit. And it's true, there are, and that's great. There are Pentecostal churches who are as dead as dodos. And there are C of E places um, which are really moving in the spirit. But what I said on the tape is that that's great, but of course, give it a few years and they won't be C of E churches anymore because the Holy Spirit will have taken them beyond that, you see, they'll have seen the truth. But the tragedy is that years later, in many, many places, not only are they still that tradition, but people who beforehand didn't embrace that tradition are embracing it. I mean, there are people leaving house churches, joining Anglican churches to become Anglicans because they see the move of the Spirit in the Anglican Church. And they go in there embracing false tradition and false teaching. I mean, can you see how crazy it is? And, and it's, you know, it's got to be in submission to the Scriptures. Now, this is what I mean. I mean, we mustn't break fellowship with it. I mean, I can quite happily have fellowship with people from all denominations, no problem whatsoever. Our fellowship is in the Lord. But we take these things for granted. I mean, we accept dog collars. We accept unscriptural traditions. We accept bits of heresy here and there. When really we shouldn't. We shouldn't. You know, because they're painting a false picture of, you know, of the church and what Christianity is. A lot of it is anti-Bible teaching though, isn't it? People, not the leaders, but the <laughs> us humble ones in the pews, don't know what the Bible says. I mean, there's, all right, there's the fortunate, I must say there's the fortunate who come here and can hear it. Yeah. People can go to say meetings like this, which aren't, which are sort of not very numerous, and learn what the Bible says, but the, People who just sort of sit in the pews or go to the midweek meetings don't really get proper Bible teaching about um, important things. So they're none the wiser. They just accept these things because that's what they've been brought up with. Yeah. And they see it. They don't realise that it isn't actually from the Bible. They probably think it is. They never challenge anything. I think what the says is absolutely right. They accept it all passively. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It occurs sometimes because you don't know. You see, now, you're on about Mikhail's deck, and you've obviously got the same idea of wondering about King of Salem and all the rest of the King of Peace. You've heard all this. Well, in, in the in the uh, Wellington Road Baptist Church, where I was baptised when I first went, I was yeah. a, I'd come to the meeting. Yeah. Uh, of course, we got this this like we we, we had this teaching that this the, the, this Mackenzie deck really was the Lord Jesus, and that is why he brought the bread and wine, significant of the the uh, symbols that we have now. And uh, of course, we must give a tenth of our uh, income as a tithe because uh, Abraham had given this and this was being taught in you know, Wayne's and Bowes, Baptist mm. Church with, with a lot of charismatic mm. thing but I mean that was being taught there I mean I go there and really I, I think very much the same as you, you see confused like you were Robert you see because you've probably heard the same thing mm. I mean because it all gets, it fits in so well doesn't it, he's king of kings and prince, and prince of peace mm. the, the, the Lord and so this this man is the king of Salem, which of course is uh, mm. Jerusalem actually means city of peace, doesn't mm. it? You see, so that uh, all those things, and, and you see, it's not meant it's not meant to be. Oh, it isn't given out as wrong teaching, but it becomes wrong teaching now. Yeah, doesn't it? You see, I think probably probably, so probably heard the same thing. That's where you're getting confused. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I mean, one thing. I mean, sort of on this thing about sort of like unfortunate signs that are happening in certain questions, uh, in, in certain areas. This ties up with what, what I was saying a few moments ago, that there's increasing support in the Anglican Church amongst spirit-filled Christians in the Anglican Church an increasing amount of support for the ordination of women to the priesthood. 
Now, why that is so worrying is for two reasons. Firstly, as I've said, we are all priests anyway. Women are priests. Now, if you support the ordination of women, that is simply to show that you still haven't understood what priesthood is anyway. And I can't think of anything more fundamental to the Christian life than priesthood. Do you see what I mean? But not only that, there's not that understanding about priesthood, but also the fact that obviously in the C of E and things like that, it's the priests who are doing the job of what we would say elders, all right, having authority in the church. And they shouldn't be priests with dog collars. If they're called, they should be elders, dressed like everyone else. But the point is that the Bible specifically teaches that women are not to be elders in the church. They're not to have authority over men. Now, you've got two things in the Bible which are, I mean, it's, it's not that anyone can actually come up with an argument to support them. I mean, it's like these people, including spirit-filled people, who say that women ought to be free to lead in the church and be elders, etc. It's not that they're putting together an argument from the Bible. They're but what they're doing is saying that the teaching that Paul gave was in the context of a society that was down on women. Now, can you see what they're doing? They're deciding that a bit of the Bible was wrong. Now, can you see it? And yet, these people believe that the Holy Spirit is leading them to these conclusions. He's not. He's not leading them to those conclusions. And this is just what I find a bit tragic. I really what is do. that scripture? You can have deaconesses, though, can't you? Well. The whole thing about the diaconate is that the diaconate are there for practical duties and admin. A diaconate in the Bible does not have any authority. <laughs> it's purely practical. Yeah. The word deacon means to serve at tables. It's the eldership who rule the church, yes. all right, who hold the authority. And that is male only, as Paul says in Timothy, that I permit no woman to have authority over a man. Timothy. Timothy, who just wanted to see that. <coughs> 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2 verse 12, he says, I permit no woman to teach, now without going into all the Greek of it, that's in a continuous tense, it means to be a Bible teacher, alright, it doesn't mean to teach on any one occasion, it means a Bible teacher, one who teaches and continues to teach, I permit no woman to be a, this is 1 Timothy 2 verse 12, I permit no woman to teach or be a teacher, you know, more to be a Bible teacher, or to have authority over men. And of course the reason a woman can't be a Bible teacher is because a Bible teacher is eldership capacity in the body of Christ, obviously. The Bible teacher probably above everyone else. So the word teach really means Bible teacher. Yeah, what you've got there, it's all to do with the tenses in the Greek. Now then, <coughs> Let's take the aorist tense. Now let's take faith. If you had, say, faith, all right, the Greek word is pistis, all right, now faith in the aorist tense. What that means is to have faith on a one-off occasion, all right? So that, I mean, if you sort of like were in a spot of bother and, you know, said, oh, what do I do? And somebody said to you, have faith. Um, then that's in the aorist tense. They're saying, just in that moment of time, have faith, all right, as, as a one-off act at that moment. Mm -hmm. However, that word, pistis, to have faith, when put into the continuous tense, then becomes meaning not to have faith, but to become a believer, to be a believer. Can you see? It's taken to the extent that you've taken on the very nature of what you're doing, all right? Now then, here, this verb, to teach, it's in the, um, it's not in the aorist tense. If it was in the aorist tense, Paul would be saying, I permit no woman to teach at any time. He's not saying that. It's in the continuous tense, which means Paul is saying, I permit no woman to teach and to do it so often that they take on the character of what they're doing, i.e. be a Bible teacher. So that's what it is. doesn't mean that a woman can't stand up and teach in the body of Christ. That would be crazy. That would absolutely be crazy. I mean, um, in the gifts of the Spirit, prophecy is partially so that people can learn. 
Well, that means that prophecy teaches us, and women can prophesy. doesn't mean you can't teach on a one-off thing, but a woman cannot be a Bible teacher in the church, because that is an eldership function, which means having authority, not just over the ladies, but over the men as well. And that's what ladies in the kingdom can't do. Now, these arguments for having ladies in eldership are because they say, but this was the church in a culture where women were kind of trodden on. Now, I admit that women were a bit trodden on in that culture, but not by the church. Not by the church, they weren't. And can you see, they found a mistake in the Bible. There's something in the Bible they want to rectify. Can you see? Because today, we do things differently. So the Bible gets subjugated under the way that the world does it today, you see. You know, the sort of the arguments, I mean, how can we, you know, in a country where our prime minister is a woman, how can we be saying that you can't have, you know, lady elders in the church? Well, the reason is because the Bible says you can't, and that is all that matters, you see. Um, you know, I mean, sort of the Bible says that we are all priests, the priesthood of all believers. You know, but up we come with our dog collars and our priesthoods and things like that. When did it change from being a simple, you know, priesthood as it is now? When did it become such as it is now? Oh, what, with having yeah. the separate castes and yes, things like that? Well, interestingly enough, in, in, in the Revelation, you get reference to the false teaching of the Nicolaitans, all right? Now, there are various, you know, sort of attempts to find out who exactly they were. They were obviously Christians who were into heresy in the early church, and the Lord condemned their teaching. Now, no one knows fully for sure what their teaching was, but certain evidence has come to light. It's not conclusive but it's thought that they were among the first Christians to have a separate caste system, i.e. that they had a priesthood, and they were in charge, and the laity, as it were, did what they told. You see what I mean? Um, pardon? Oh, that goes back a long way, but once you sort of got sort of characters like Augustine, and, and that led to the Catholic Church, that by then, you've got it really strong. And of course, the, it always really started the Church of Rome, didn't it? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, in that sense. And remembering that so many of the Christians had come out from that Judaistic background. And remember, even in the pagan religions, they had their priesthood, you see. Because in the world, they like to have a show, don't they? You see, you know, I'm, I'm the priest. But well, didn't they have to have that in the Old Bible also? Pardon? The Testament. They had to have that in the Old Testament also. They had to wear the special clothing. They had to do everything special. Didn't That's they? right. That's yeah. right. And didn't Jesus didn't change that, did he? He did. Yeah. He changed yeah. it absolutely. Jesus, when Jesus came, he talked about most of the Old Bible all the time. One of the Old Testament, really. Ah, oh, yeah. But the point was that, as I said, everything in the Old Testament was there to provide a picture of what Jesus was going to do. Now, the point was that Jesus was a priest of a totally different order of the Old Testament. Jesus didn't go around in priest clothes or things like that. I mean, he, I mean, when Jesus died on the cross, the whole of the Old Testament thing, it just collapsed and fell to bits. Because it was only there anyway to picture the coming of Jesus. I mean, for instance, the priests had to sacrifice. You see? They had to sacrifice. You had to go to them and you say, priest, I've sinned, all right? So they organize the sacrifice so that that sin can be atoned for, all right? Mm. Now, the point is, when Jesus died on the cross, he atoned for sin, lot, stock and barrel. Yeah, but we, it's Jesus who has dealt with sin. We don't need a priesthood to deal with our sin because Jesus has dealt with our sin yeah, as our great high priest. Then when he had them at the table and he said, what was it again he said? What was it he says? Whose sins you Shall forgive, you? they are forgiven. He said to the disciples, mm. go and preach. Mm. And whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Yeah, that's right. But he so said that to the twelve disciples, not a priesthood. To the disciples. Yeah. And write to the world and teach. And, and well, he said that, didn't he, really? Yeah. Oh, that's right. So then why, why say that to them when we should just go direct to Jesus and say, forgive my sins? 
Ah, oh, right, okay. Now then, you firstly... Know, the disciples have told them to do Right, okay. What Jesus was saying to them then, he says, yeah, anyone whose sins you forgive are forgiven, anyone whose sins you retain are retained. Right, yeah. but, but the point see, is, he's... John thinks that, that by the disciples, that you could go to the disciple and the disciple could forgive sin. But that's not the way it works. Well, no, it's, it's a sure. question that... When Jesus gave those instructions to the disciples, he was giving them to the early church. We are disciples of Jesus. Now then, that injunction to forgive and retain sins applies to disciples. It applies to all of us, not a special priesthood. I have authority to forgive and to retain sin. Now, what does it mean? Okay, it means this. Now then, obviously, against thee only have I sinned. But when you've sinned, obviously you've got to put that right with God. And obviously if it's been against someone else, you've got to put it right with them as well. But often we have the problem that there may be times when we've confessed our sin to the Lord, okay, and it's forgiven, it's dealt with, but we don't feel it, we don't get the benefit, we don't get our peace back. Now the Bible says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Now sometimes you can confess a sin, and as soon as you've done that, you're back in fellowship with God. But rather than having the peace of the Holy Spirit, Satan's condemning you and you feel rotten. Now in times like that, it can be very, very helpful to go to a brother or sister who can confirm that that sin has been forgiven, who can make it more real. You see what I mean? Now then, they only have the authority to do that because they're a priest. But remember, it could be a two-minute year old, it could be a two-minute old Christian, and it can be a woman Christian. Can you see, as long as they are a Christian. Now, the thing about retaining things, sin, as well, I mean, if you sort of say that um, you'd sort of been resentful against someone and maybe you'd spoken harsh words at them or something like that, you'd hurt them, you'd done wrong, all right? And you'd repented, you'd said to the Lord, Lord, you know, I just repent of that, forgive me, okay? Now then, we know that if you've sinned against your brother, you've got to go and put it right with your brother. Now, if you came to me and you said, look, I've repented of this, but I just don't have any peace and that, and I say, well, you know, have you been to them to say sorry? And you say, no, I'm not going to them, you see. Now then, that sin is retained, because until you've put yourself right with your brother, you're not right with God. You see what I mean? Therefore, I could say to you in that sense, well, look, I'm sorry, Alf boy, but of course you haven't got any peace with God because until you've gone and said sorry to them, you're not really sorry to God either. Do you see what I mean? So there's this sense of forgiving and retaining sins, but it's not, a, I mean, not like the churches sort of tend to practice it. I mean, that's, that's absolutely crazy. It's, it's simply so, part of us acting out our mutual priesthood. Yeah, before you can actually confirm to anyone that that sin has been cleared up, you've got to make sure yourself that that person has actually come to the point of, of repentance before God. Yeah, in that sense. Before, I mean, before you can actually confirm that God has, has cleared it, because yeah. otherwise you can then take that upon yourself, couldn't yeah, you, really? Yeah, that's right. You, know, um, you, <laughs> that you, you can be sort of, as I say, judge for that, in the judgment of works, if you like. Yeah, I mean, if I or you sin, be it against God alone or be it against God and someone else, then I and you are quite capable of getting that sin right with God and our brother without any help from anyone. Because we are priests. This is a beautiful thing. I'm my own priest, you see. That's why I can get right with God on my own. And if I've sinned against you, I can do it on my own. What I'm saying is that say I find myself unable to be a priest to myself and I'm still under condemnation, having confessed it, then maybe I can go to a brother and sister and sort of say, oh, you know, I really feel, you know, I mean, I've, I've prayed, you know, I've, I've said sorry and that, but I just can't get peace. Will you pray for me? Then they can bring me through to that peace that for whatever reason I can't get on my own. But if in me going to them and saying, look, I can't get peace, I need it, if they then discover that, that I'm not right with my brother or sister, or that maybe I've been saying, oh, yes, Lord, I'm sorry, but look what they did to me. You see what I mean? then what they've got to say is, well, I'm sorry, you haven't really repented. Because repentance is just coming clean. All right. And if it involves a third party, it's coming clean with them as well. You see, so that's what I'm meaning about retaining sins and forgiving sins. It's, it's nothing to do, say, with the system of sort of, bless me, Father, for I've sinned. I mean, that is total heresy. 
It's total heresy. And it's much more open to do it that way with a Christian hand. It's yeah. much more open than going into a box and shutting yourself in and going through oh, a whole, uh, you know, and when I say this right, is that right? Or should I? And you end up making like, up, like, like, you're not open. Yeah, but as again, you're saying like, if you had something, now if I had something that I wanted to tell Beresford privately, that I had done something horrible wrong. Now I wouldn't want to just oh, in front of everybody. No, you know, no, I wouldn't no, go to you privately and say, well, I went down the road there and something oh, terrible yeah, happened. Yeah, right. Yeah. And would you pray for me and ask God and you, wouldn't I? So that's really a lot of the boxes. Right, okay. You don't want everybody to listen to something Nasty that oh, you've done. Yeah, that's you hit right. some old woman across the head or down the road there and mugged her. You wouldn't want everybody to say, oh, look at him, mugger. Yeah, obviously, you know. we're going to want privacy. I accept you know, that. that. But, the point is with, but the main thing is to be with God, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. But the point is that if you were to come, sort of say to me, and obviously if you wanted it in private, you get it in private. I mean, I wouldn't see any need of sort of sitting back to back or anything like that. I mean, no, no. But <laughs> all I'm saying is, that, that if you came to me, you'd be coming to me because I'm a Christian, because I'm a priest, because I'm a Christian. Not because I'm a priest who's been ordained. Because, right? I mean, I haven't. I wouldn't be. I've refused to be. got no time for it. I mean, I debated it in, in, in my early years. You know, I mean, I felt a call to the ministry. And kind of, you know, in my naive way, I haven't been a Christian long. I mean, I, I thought that meant the ordained ministry because it's the only one I knew. I didn't know anything about independent Bible teachers and things like that. And, you know, I mean, I sort of considered, I thought, right, Lord, if that's what you want, I'll do it. You know, but praise God, it wasn't what God wanted. And obviously now I can see, of course, it wasn't what God wanted because the very idea itself doesn't tie up with Scripture. But if you came to me in that way, it's simply because I'm your brother. You could be going to anyone sure. except that you're free to choose who you think it should be, I obviously. With, with, it, with a Christian friend, you can... You can release many things. You can mm. open up on things. Whereas, where you, if you go to a confessional, you're in there in almost darkness. You're talking to almost someone that you don't quite know if they're they're listening. Of course, I'm not saying that, but you're not free. You know, mm. if you've got a Christian friend, I could sit with Pat, and if I had something bothering, I could let it go. Mm. I could break down. I could do lots of things to free myself. Mm. She could talk to me. I. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you wouldn't right. feel, oh, I can't break down now. This priest will think I'm a head kiss. <laughs> you know what I mean? But when you're with a Christian friend, you can, or, or there's people outside listening and they hear you sniffing and think, oh, what's going on in there? You come out and you think, oh, they're all looking at me. You know? yeah. But you can go privately to a friend. You can have your confessions. You can feel total freedom yeah. and nothing to be embarrassed, nothing yeah. to hold you back. In fact, yeah. you can get rid of much more. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And a bit of kind thing thrown in. Yeah, I mean, this is simply <laughs> acting out Stop our priesthood amongst each other. You see, that that's the lovely thing about it. You know, it's just acting out our priesthood amongst each other. But we're all priests. That's, that's the lovely thing about it. Yeah, 